When kids just won't listen, parents often feel stuck between two choices, to give in or get angry. It's exhausting. We give you the top techniques directly from the experts, helping you on your path to a more peaceful, respectful, and joyful life with your kids. Dealing with temper tantrums, emotional outbursts, testing authority, lying, fighting, and whining on a daily basis is tough, especially if you have multiple children. When these behaviors get out of hand and become more consistent, it's nice to have a specialist around to help out, especially when we're curious about which of the behaviors are normal and which ones should be raising red flags. Our guest today is a consultant for behavior management. She is a board-certified behavior analyst, BCBA, and is an expert on the principles of applied behavior analysis. See that as ABA. So what does a BCBA do? Well, a large portion of their work is centered on communication with parents, children, schools, and medical professionals in order to design individualized treatment plans. A BCBA is often thought of as someone who works just with kids with autism. But as we'll reveal in this conversation, this is not an autism-specific credential. As Shauna points out, everyone has behavior, and a board-certified behavior analyst is someone who can analyze and um, help direct or guide anyone's behavior. In this conversation, Shauna will explain more about how behavioral theories can help in the day-to-day struggle of child-rearing and how parents can apply ABA principles to get their kids to listen. This episode is a little noisy. We were trying to record in a public environment. There's background music. Uh, Apologies for that. Now let's get to the interview with board-certified behavior analyst, Shauna Adams. Shauna. What's up? Thanks for meeting me today. No problem. Um, I'm going to jump right into the questions I have for you. Okay. Starting with, what do you love about working with kids? Um, Probably what I love about working with kids is I um, love making improvements in their life and playing with them and seeing how happy kids can get over the smallest things. Yeah. It's kind of magical. Yes, it is. And how long have you been working with kids? Um, I have been working with children since 2014. You have a technical expertise with your experience in becoming a board-certified behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. So what you've learned in your academic studies, how well has that translated to working with kids in the, in the real world? 
Um, it did. It translated really well. Um, the master's program in applied behavior analysis at Florida State University does have a bit of an emphasis towards working with um, developmental disabilities. Um, we do have um, some classes about um, working with geriatric um, populations and also a class about performance management and working in the operational behavior management area, but uh, it was mostly kind of uh, most of the opportunities around the school and involved with the school at this time were more focused towards working with developmental disabilities. So since I work with children with autism and other developmental disabilities right now, it translated really well. The kids that you're going to see, what percentage of them are neurotypical? All of the children I work with right now are on the spectrum. On the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. The field that you're in, is it, could you answer that question about kind of what percentage people who are in your field are working with children with autism, or is I it? I mean, I would say in general, I think um, because working with autism is what put us on the map um, a little bit more than what we were before, I would say that the majority of our field leads in that direction, but we have a lot of subspecialties that we have, you know, that we work in, but I would say autism is probably the biggest forefront of it. And that's with adults or children or stuff like that. So a question I'm sure you hear a lot mm -hmm. is about applied behavior analysis mm -hmm. and what populations it works for, what populations it doesn't work for. Um, I mean, quite often people uh, make comments that um, ABA is just for people with developmental disabilities, and that's not true. Um, ABA is like, uh, you know, mission is to use the principles of behavior to um, improve everyone's environment in any way that we can, whether that is more efficient recycling procedures or better safety measures at a business or, um, you know, helping the environment. There's a lot of different people in my field who are very passionate about finding ways to implement ABA across everything. Um, but the general, under the very, I guess the layman's understanding of it is a lot of people think that uh, what we do is only good for kids on the spectrum. That's the farthest thing from the truth. Um, we're good for so many things. We have a, a joke saying we always say save the world with behavior analysis. So where do you think that mentality comes from when people have that preconception about ABA? Is it just because that's where the the dollars and the time are are being spent? It would probably be you probably most people haven't heard of applied behavior analysis unless they have a friend or a relative that is receiving those services. Um, like I said, um, the fact of that we're considered one of the most effective treatments, if not the most effective treatment for working um, with individuals on the autism spectrum, um, that, you know, that's all the way people hear, hear right. about us, um, and we've been around forever. You're saying that a parent of a neurotypical child could benefit from having some understanding of ABA or from contacting or... Just having some knowledge about. So one hundred percent, it would help them with their everyday struggles they have with raising a child. Because you know that's not easy. It doesn't matter uh, what's going on with your kid. Every parent struggles in some way, just because you know it's raising another human. <laughs> it's a big responsibility, and there's so much other responsibilities that we as adults have to deal with day in and day out. Um, 
basic understanding of um, behavioral principles, then you know how to maybe address um, maybe issues you may be having with your child or um, have a general idea of how you can motivate your child to start engaging in some behaviors you'd like to see. So in the name of the field being applied behavior analysis, you're, you're saying that you all do more than you may start with an analysis, but you're looking for ways to motivate um, or somehow affect some change in the environment to help a kid or anyone. Yeah, help anyone in general. We're called applied behavior analysis um, because we're essentially taking the principles that they learned back in the lab with the pigeons and the rats, that experimental analysis behavior, you know, the science, the core science of it where we learned our principles and how things work the way they do with behavior. Um, we take that and we're applying behavior analysis because we're applying it to real life situations. We're taking it um, from the lab to the real world. Hmm. Can you tell me more about what you mean when you say studies that they found in the lab and how that can be helpful for understanding human behavior? Um, well, because we didn't really look at it as human behavior. I mean, behavior has no species boundaries. Um, we, um, all species engage in behaviors, um, certain behaviors for the same reason. Um, we're all susceptible to histories, learning histories of reinforcement and punishment, and that shapes our behavior the same way it would shape the behavior of an animal. So, you know, because we're individual, the same, animals, same way animals are, and um, they would just be testing, like, you know, just the basic principles, like, can we shape up behavior? If we reinforce what this pigeon's doing, is it going to do it more? Um, if we punish what this, what this cat is doing, is it going to do it less? Or, you know, how is what, the, the, what we do, how is that going to affect their behavior? And are we going to see this consistently across studies? And we found, you know, a set of principles that were consistent across studies. The title of this show is Getting Kids to Listen. Mm -hmm. And that is maybe from a behavioral standpoint, a bit vague, mm -hmm. because is that measurable? Um, I'm wondering if you hear that from parents, if they're, if they're saying, how do I get this kid to listen? I mean, and, uh, and how you might define that, help them define that from a behavioral standpoint. Um, whenever a parent asks me how to get their kid to do anything, whether um, it's a parent of a, uh, a neurotypical child or uh, a parent of a child that might have some developmental delays, um, the whatever they ask me first, I'm like, well, tell me, tell me what that means to you. Like, what kind of what kind of behaviors come to mind mm -hmm. when you say want them to listen? Like, do you want them to listen when you ask them to, when you ask them to do things, or are you wanting them to follow your demands? You know, I try to get them to elaborate and talk them through it. Um, so if the parent had said, um, I don't get my kid to listen, I mean, it would first, the first thing I would, again, when are they not listening to you? Can you be more specific? And then if it's on uh, demands, I'd be like, well, when are you asking a child? Are they engaged in other activity? How old's your child? Um, what's your child's skill set? There's so many things that come into play that um, sometimes we can... Sometimes we as adults expect more of a children than we expect of ourselves. Um, like the way we're always trying to emotionally regulate children, and it's, it 
it's okay to be frustrated sometimes. Mm. It's okay for them to feel those feelings. And and we get frustrated all the time, but then we get so upset when our kids get frustrated. Yep. Um, so, um, so usually when, I, when parents ask me how I get my kids to do anything, I'm like, well, first you have to figure out exactly what it looks like and then figure out how often are they doing it. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing it very little, then maybe they don't even have the skills. So you maybe need to teach them how to do what you're expecting of them. And then you have to find a way to motivate them to keep doing it until it gets to a point where they're just doing it on their own. So correct me if I'm wrong, your, your process starts with defining what behaviors you're really even mm-hmm. talking about. Exactly. And would you say that's a difficult process? Is that a process that someone could go through on their own if they had a basic understanding of this? Um, I wouldn't say it's too difficult for anyone if you have a, a basic understanding of what a definition needs to have. I mean, I'm sure even today sometimes I'll write up a definition for a behavior of a child I'm working with. and. After I read it, I'm just gonna trash it because it's just not a very objective definition. Um, we, we have this thing we call the dead man's test. Um, if, a, if a dead man can do it, then it's not a behavior. Um, so, I, so I usually tell people, I was like, you know, come up with the best definition you can, then read it back to yourself, and, and then ask yourself, could a dead man do that? Um, and then you also want to ask yourself, if I gave this definition to someone else, would they be able to see exactly what I'm talking about, or would they pick up other things as they think qualifying or that definition? Um, so, you know, it's just being clear as concise as possible. Of course, I don't expect parents to go to that, that very scientific degree, but I try to, at least with kids, I tell them, keep your definition super simple so mm-hmm. it's easy for your child to follow. So with that dead man test... Mm-hmm. When a parent says, I'm asking the child to do this, and they're not doing it, does that normally not, not pass the, the dead man test? The child's, I mean, you have to tell me a specific. I'm, just, I'm picturing a kid sitting on the floor watching television, and they're asked to come to the dinner table, or they're asked to go brush their teeth. Mm-hmm. A request has been made, and the adult's getting very little to no feedback or adults feeling like they're not being heard. So then I would, if a parent said to me, like, I want them to do what I'm asking them to do while they're watching the TV, I'd be like, well, how often do they pay attention to anything Mm -hmm. while they're watching TV? And then may I I may tell a parent um, maybe instead what you should do instead of asking your child to do something while they're watching TV, maybe interrupt the TV watching first, then ask them to do something, and you might get a different result. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's not that the child isn't able to do something um, or that they're choosing not to do what their parent asked, but they're just not being set up for success. I mean, I'm, I'm a 32-year-old adult. Sometimes if you talk to me while I'm looking at my phone, I hear nothing. Right. So sometimes it's better to be to get my attention first and get that eye contact first and know that I'm listening and that I actually hear you before just asking me questions or asking things of me. Mm-hmm. So that would have a lot to do with 
setting up the environment. The environment. For success. A, a phone in the hand is mm -hmm. part of the environment mm -hmm. of the child. It's a competition. I mean, obviously, when I have my phone in my hand, that's the most reinforcing thing to me in the moment. So, like, listening to other people outside of me, it's not going to register. The word reinforcing comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick? Okay, so with, when we talk about behavior, we have antecedents, and that's what happens before behaviors. So that might be a setting event to, you know, triggers the behavior to happen. Um, and then behaviors have consequences. Um, and those consequences can be reinforcing, punishing, or have no effect at all. Um, if a consequence is reinforcing, you know it's reinforcing because it increases the likelihood of that behavior happening again. Um, you know a consequence has been punishing if it has a likelihood of decreasing that behavior in the future. Um, and then there's other things like um, scratching an itch is not going to necessarily mean whether or not I'm going to get more or less itches in the future. So that's having no effect whatsoever. It's just a part of life. Okay. Um, so, a so a reinforcement is anything that is a consequence of a behavior, meaning mm -hmm. it comes after the behavior, mm -hmm. and it is likely to cause or produce more of that behavior. Mm -hmm. If the behavior does not increase, then whatever the consequence was, it was not reinforcing. I think that's an important point mm -hmm. because sometimes the same old tricks don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. when sometimes you get tired of the same old thing. You get satiated. You eat the same thing every day, and then you're like, I could never eat this again and be fine. Right. And I think a lot of frustration comes there when we've been doing something that works mm -hmm. for a child, for example. Perhaps we're rewarding them or having a positive reinforcement for a certain behavior. And when it stops working, we get frustrated. Mm -hmm. So the way you're defining these terms, you're saying that it's no longer reinforcing. Mm -hmm. No matter, in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, this is the reinforcement. And you're saying not if the behavior is not Exactly. More of it happening. We don't, we don't necessarily get to choose what reinforces others. Um, we can think something would be a great idea and be reinforcing, and it has no effect at all, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, other things to keep in mind are magnitude of a reinforcement. You also want to make sure that the consequence matches the behavior that you're expecting. You're not going to buy your child a brand-new car because they remember to take out the trash. But you're also not going to expect a child who doesn't take out the trash now to take out the trash every day so you'll give them a Snickers bar on Saturday. Right. You know, it has to, kind of has to, you got to get that, that formula right. Are reinforcing, are reinforcements always tangible things? Does it? Not at all. Because I feel like, I know a lot of people have a problem with the idea of handing out anything, a piece mm -hmm. of candy at any time the child does what they want them to do. Yeah. So what are, what's an example of a not, not a tangible reinforcement? There's a, um, if, it's, if you're not using tangible, there's social praise. Some kids just love to be told they're doing a good job and that their parents are proud of them. Um, a lot of kids like that attention. Um, there's having that social interaction, just, you know, someone acknowledging them, again, kind of falls in place with the social praise. Um, 
there's also, um, well, tangible and edible. It's almost the same. Edible is going to be more like food, and tangible is going to be like toys or something like that. Um, and then there's privileges. Um, I usually recommend privileges when it comes to teenagers. Um, it, it doesn't always have to have a monetary value. Um, sometimes you can just be giving um, extending curfew um, or 15 more minutes of TV time at night if you're the kind of parent that already kind of sections off how much screen time they get. Um, just increasing an already available reinforcer can go a long ways. And a lot of kids, a lot of kids are extremely motivated to just have individual time with their parents. And I feel like sometimes parents underestimate the power that they have just by spending time with their kids. Um, a lot of times when I've, I've done, like, group caregiver trainings, um, well, the assumption is that they're going to have to go out and buy something for their kid every time. And, and that's not true. Sometimes kids would just love to spend time with them. And, uh, and they challenge me on that. So I tell them to go home between that class and that class and ask their child if they would be willing to do X, Y, and Z. Um, to watch a movie with dad that night or to have mom read a book to you or something. And almost all of them come back and the kids were like, yeah, I want to do that. I mean, I um, even teenagers would be down for their mom to paint their nails. You know, it's just quality time together. Um, it doesn't always have to be store-bought. So in a couple of weeks... When I get a phone call from a parent saying, you know, I listened to your podcast and then and I wanted to reinforce a behavior. So I went home. I praised the kid. I, I gave him a later bedtime. I had one on one time and I even painted his nails and, you know, it didn't reinforce. So I think that this guest just <laughs> did not. He didn't do what I asked him to do after all of that. Uh, I would probably say that if you're able to ask your child what they'd be motivated for, that that is the most successful way to go about it. Um, kids are usually pretty good at telling you what they want. Um, and depending on the age or just the general personality of the child, they might come up with some ridiculous responses at first and just kind of laugh it off and be like, uh, try again. You know, they might be like, $100. And you're like, let's try that again. What are some other things you might be motivated for? Um, and then listen to your kids. A lot of times kids talk about things that they're interested in or if they know there's an event coming up, teenagers, if there's a concert coming up, they might be really motivated to go to that concert and that might be something in the future that you can build towards. And, you know, or they talk about how one of their friends goes to the park every week um, and maybe they want to join their friend at the park. Um, so you just kind of pay attention to what... Um, your kids are most motivated to talk about are probably the things that they're most motivated to work for. So if every kid has a different different thing that they might be into or, or that's reinforcing to them, mm-hmm. does that mean that it's just impossible to have a show like this or, or a good book that says, here's some things you should do for your kid? Do we all have to go through this process of analyzing their individual responses or is there, is there an in-between of these things in this area should generally work, will likely generally work, and also you can tailor it. I would say, I mean, almost every form of anything where you can get advice when it comes to parenting kids or raising kids or whatever, we all have cookie-cutter versions of ways we can explain to it, but 
Um, in my belief, you know, we're all individuals, so everything should be individualized to us. So, um, I mean, you can take most of the cookie cutter suggestions I can give today and attempt to individualize it to your child. Um, you know, like asking them what they're motivated for, and um, sometimes they might not be in, in the mood to have that conversation. So just try again another day. Um, but um, I would say that because we're not we're not just replicas of each other. That yeah, you should always individualize things to your child. They have a personality. Yeah. You have a personality. A big one that jumped out at me when you were talking was social praise, mm-hmm. because. That can be done so many ways. Oh, yes. It can be done publicly. It can be done at the dinner table. It mm-hmm. can be done with a look. and It can be done too loudly and they don't like it. Right. <laughs> it, can, it, it can miss the mark in a, in a lot of ways. Or, mm-hmm. or, it can, or you can have all the best intentions mm-hmm. and still, I mean, I, I myself would be the kind of kid who, if I'm praised socially, I would be embarrassed or um, yeah, I would usually probably find some embarrassment there and it might... Mm-hmm. It might tell me, I'm not going to do that again if it means I'm going to get called out, essentially, mm-hmm. even if it's in a positive way. So. Well, I would think most likely parents could tell that. Because if you're embarrassed, you probably turned red sure. a little bit. And you probably were averting your eyes and engaging in a lot of behaviors that were avoidance-based. Mm-hmm. Like putting your head down and putting your hand over your brow and just shielding your eyes from like watching everything going around right. you. Um, usually... Um, you can kind of tell if something did not have the effect you wanted it to, and you can always sit down with your child later on, and if you suspect that maybe that wasn't what they were looking for, you can be like, hey, um, I wanted to talk about earlier when I praised you in front of all your friends. It seemed like I embarrassed you a little bit. I'm really sorry about that. Is there, do you not want me to praise you maybe things like that? Is there a different way I could have gone about this? I mean, again, like communication is key. So when you see the debates raging on of social praise is good, social praise is bad, telling, tell, giving a kid a cookie is good, giving a kid a cookie is bad, and you have parents on either side of the aisle saying, no, I'm, I'm so certain of this because I've tried it and it didn't work. And the behavior analysts would say... Not including your child in that process is bad. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be successful if you don't include your child in the process. So that, that debate of what we should do for our kids, quote, you know, the, the royal we, all of us, is, is kind of missing the mark if we're mm-hmm. not taking in their individual preferences. Exactly. Avoid, afford your children the same dignity you want to be afforded. They're, they're people, too. And I don't mean to belabor the point, but if you have two kids and they respond to things very differently, they respond to different reinforcements, let's say, mm-hmm. How would you recommend the parent wants to be fair, Mm -hmm. but giving the kids equal reinforcements or rewards isn't actually equally reinforcing to their behavior, even if they're twins, and the parent says, hey, you know, I I gave them both five bucks to do, and when they did the the chore for me, Mm -hmm. um, it it didn't reinforce with one of them, and it did with the other. Could have asked the other what else did they want, and you could have gave them something that if the five dollars isn't important to them, then why are they going to feel it's unfair when they got something else instead? Yeah, I'm imagining a parent feeling like it's unfair well, if they're not doing everything exactly the same for each of their kids. Then again, they're not considering the individual child in the process, it's right. not, not about the parent.
So to get a kid to listen, to get a kid to respond to a request or to just coexist peacefully and make sure that the things get done that we want done in our households, the first step is to understand what the individual child is motivated by, what they're mm-hmm. into, what they what they find reinforcing or mm-hmm. is reinforcing for their behavior. Mm-hmm. So let's say we know that, mm-hmm. know what our kids are into. What's the next step? So if you're trying to set an expectation with your child, let's say you want them to start picking up their room. You know, you feel like they're old enough, they should be cleaning up the room themselves. Um, they already um, help you sort, sort laundry or help you uh, put dishes away, but now you want them to also clean their room on their own. And um, that's definitely a conversation to have with them. Um, so um, the first step is to plan on having that conversation and have it away from the expectation itself. You know, you don't want to have that conversation when they would be cleaning their room. You don't even want to have that conversation in their room. You kind of want to just find a good opportunity where you guys are just sitting, maybe you're having dinner or something, and you're just, you know, having nice family conversations, and you want to talk to them about it. Um, You want to maybe start with setting a positive tone. So maybe they already are doing some sort of chore around the house. So you might want to start with bringing up, and it's like, you know, you know how you help me sort laundry and you're helping me put the dishes away every night? Um, you're doing so good at that. You've been so helpful. You know, start with a positive tone. Um, you don't typically want to start with, you know how you've been wanting to go to the movies this weekend? You don't really want the motivation behind the expectation necessarily is uh, to get the reinforcer. The reinforcers just kind of help you. You know, it's almost like a booster more than it's, we don't want the... The point is not for the child to feel like, I clean my room because I get to go to the movies this weekend. I clean my room because it's important to clean my room. But it's great because mom also brings me to the movies. Or or I clean my room because it felt good, mm -hmm. even if that's kind of a subconscious connection to the the reward or reinforcement. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm using that word. So you set the, you know, have that conversation and you set the stage, you know, an appropriate place, set a positive tone, um, and then you want to stay with that expectation is you want to clearly and specifically state it like where, when, what, and how. Um, so if it's picking up room, you might be like, so I'd like you to start picking up your room um, after dinner before we get ready for bed. Um, and saying that means I would like you to pick up your toys off the floor put your dirty clothes in the laundry basket and put your clothes out for school the next day or whatever. Um, whatever the parent defines as a clean room um, and how, you know, the expectation. And sometimes kids are not always receptive. They're not going to be like, okay, mom. Right. They might be like, oh, man. Right. Oh. Not into it. You know, and it's okay to be empathetic to that. Don't get upset. You can just be like, I know, I know, it sounds awful, but you already do so great with your other children. I know you'll be great at this. Mm. I get it. You know, just be empathetic and just, again, bring back that positive tone. Um, If the child asks why they should clean their room, that's a great time to explain to them how important it is 
to be cleanly and how it's a skill they're going to need to have uh, when they're grown up and they're out on their own. But if they don't ask, it's unnecessary to explain. Don't shove information down your child's throat that they're not interested in at this time. It's not worth it. It also kind of takes away from the positive tone. Mm. Um, then you can, after you explain the expectation, um, you can start stating the consequences for it. Uh, for meeting and not meeting, you can be like, if you do this, um, you can earn this. And then you also be like, but if you don't do it, you will not earn whatever it is. So if it's going to the movies, you're like, okay, uh, if you can clean your room every day after school, Monday through Friday, um, uh, you get to go to the movies on the weekends with one of your friends. Um, but if you don't clean your room every day after school, you don't go to the movies with, uh, with your friends this weekend. Um, and I say that as a generic example. If your child really isn't already doing much around the house, having an expectation of them going from doing nothing to doing something every day is unreasonable. Right. So start small <laughs> right. if they're not doing it. So if this is a child that wasn't already engaging in chores and didn't ever pick up after themselves, it might be like, if you pick up your room on Fridays, I will bring you to the movies on Saturday, right. you know, um, and then build up your expectation over time. Uh, um, can I... I heard you say the word consequence, and I know that's another word that a lot of people use, and I bet, I bet they're using it differently from they usually, behavior. They think it's a negative connotation. They usually think consequences is, like, not usually so not the rewards you reap, but, like, uh -huh. a consequence is, like, a negative outcome of the choice you've made. But a consequence, again, is just something that follows a behavior. Whether okay. it's good or bad doesn't really matter. So in your example, you, you, you had two consequences. The positive, which is they earn. earn, they earn something, mm -hmm. and the negative consequence, or the or the I would say neutral, neutral is consequence to not earn of something not because earning we're something. not taking anything away. Uh -huh. um, you should never take away an existing privilege. Um, if it's something you're already given your child for free, it's not really fair to take it away. Um, so you always, when you're trying to motivate your child, you kind of want to build off of something that they don't already have readily available. Um, so, again, it's in terms of earn and not earn. Um, and then um, you can negotiate. Sometimes they might be like, oh, if you go to the movies, are you going to get me popcorn and candy? And you could be reasonable. It's perfectly okay to negotiate with your kid. Um, that's part of them being part of the process. And that also shows that they're invested already in the conversation. Um, and then um, after you negotiate or you come up with everything, you come up with the expectation you have. Um, the terms of earning and not earning as far as consequences go, uh, ask the child to say it back to you so you can make sure that they understand and that you guys are on the same page. And sometimes they won't want to, especially if they're teenagers. They're usually going to be like, are you serious? Why have to, you know, make a joke about it. Just be like, come on, come on. You know, you know I'm old. I need you to make sure that we're on the same page and make a joke about it. Um, and then if they do say it back to you, you know, acknowledge it like, thank you. You know, thank you for letting me know we're on the same page. Um, and then, you know, just stay calm and neutral and, you know, make it a good conversation. Um, not always a good conversation. Sometimes it's not the right setting or the right time or place or maybe there's something else going on with the child or with you where it's just not clicking in that moment. And that's okay. Um, put a pen in it. You right. know, just be like, stop the conversation for then and try again later. Right. Sounds like a lot, of, a lot of this process is over time. You're, you're finding time. Before you're asking to clean the room to mm -hmm. understand what your child is into and mm -hmm. will be reinforcing, you're finding time to have the conversation before you're asking the child to clean the room, you know, 
or expecting them to do it right mm -hmm. then. Um, and the conversation itself might be over time where yeah. they're not they're not wanting to have it right now. And, and right now doesn't mean it's going to be like forever later, but maybe they had a really bad day at school and they're just not in a receptive state of mind to have a positive yeah. conversation. Um, we all there, have bad days. <laughs> is there a way that is a simple way for a parent to track this kind of conversation? Do, do you recommend that this is the type of thing that someone, you know, has kind of take the time to, to write down and, or is this kind of, does this become second nature event over time and they can have this overtime conversation without needing, you know, tools or a worksheet or anything to. Um, I mean, it, it does, it is. So, I mean, the, the, basically what I'm describing to you is having that, that verbal conversation, that vocal conversation um, with your child, but if you find that either you yourself are having a hard time keeping track of this, these kind of verbal agreements, or the child is having a hard time keeping track of it, then you might want to consider doing a written version of it, kind of like a contract. Mm -hmm. um, and But still outlining the same things. Um, and that could be something that you put on the back of the child's door that can serve as a daily reminder. And it also holds, it holds the child accountable, but it also holds you accountable. Yeah. So I've had that problem. It's, where I, it's really I can have a great conversation with the child or a coworker or anything. We come to a great agreement. Three weeks later, we forgot what that, you know, it went well for a while. And then we've kind of forgotten. And it slips off. And then six months later, we've really forgotten about it. And I'm mad because, hey, I thought I asked you, I thought I asked you to do this. You know, it's just kind of gone from our agreement, it feels like. So, yeah, writing that down, having it displayed somewhere. It could be on the on the refrigerator or, or when it's chore day or whatever, you might look over what we agreed on, mm -hmm. what we're doing on Saturday mornings kind mm -hmm. of thing before we go to the... No, definitely. I mean, especially if you're doing a contract, it's always good to pick a time and a place that you're always going to review the contract every week with your child. And it's important to discuss whether they earned or didn't earn at that time and then encourage them to try again. Um, and then especially if you want, like, if you have a long-term expectation. Like, sometimes we have um, a long-term expectation, something that we can't necessarily monitor daily. So maybe it's, you know, what's a common expectation parents have? Good grades on a report card. Right. And what report cards are, like, what, every three months or something? Um, and so for a longer-term expectation like that, you might want to be like, um, okay, well, this is, if your grades are good at the end of this term, then you get this big reward at the end. and. Um, and if you want to help your child be more successful, then maybe you'll have a daily reward, something smaller for things like taking time to study, doing their homework, getting their homework done when they come home from school, um, all of the little behaviors that kind of lead to getting those good grades on the report card. Um, and sometimes it can be easy as some kids will, you know, want to help you cook. It doesn't have to cost money. When people are first hearing this, and they are feeling overwhelmed mm -hmm. because maybe they haven't tried this any of these type of systems necessarily. And mm -hmm. they're thinking, wow, now I have to monitor every little thing my kid does. I have to come up with a different reward for everything. I've got to track it. And now, now I'm doing contracts. And, you know, I just, I just, I want it to be easier and smoother than that. Where would, where would you recommend that they start 
so that they're not feeling like they're suddenly. I don't usually deal with fans feeling overwhelmed about it. It's usually more likely that they're like, that's not going to work, and they just kind of brush it off. Uh-huh. Um, but typically when I uh, when I talk about these kind of things with parents, you're not going to try to change every one of your child's behaviors. It's ridiculous. <laughs> try not to overdo it. I usually say if you're going to do like a like a verbal contract where you're just talking about the child maybe make it one expectation that you're covering at a time and if you're going to do like a written version of it maybe two or three mm-hmm. but like don't overkill it right. um you can't the world rome wasn't built in the day right. behavior doesn't change overnight and um contracts don't have to be forever nor do the verbal expectations, especially if it's, like, for something that only happens once in a blue moon, that, like, you don't need to have that constant expectation on the child. Um, What you'll find, though, is that you can increase your expectations over time. So things that you were previously rewarding them for are just part of a larger plan that now gets rewarded for instead. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to, it's not like, it's not like you're just building a list of things that you're rewarding your kids for. Yeah. Uh, you kind of just kind of evolve. I mean, after a while, your child gets really good at doing the expectations that you had set and you've been rewarding. And sometimes they forget to ask yeah. for whatever it is they're working for. Sometimes you can be like, okay, well, now you do this good, and so now I want you, so now that you clean your room, I also want you to pour your own cereal in the morning. You can just add to the previous expectation, and typically when it's already, the, the, the skill is already set in, that's not asking a lot of them. They already, like, they probably clean the room like that now, and they're just... You know, um, so I would say that's the most parents get tripped over the fact that they think they're going to have to like eternally reward their children for things. I'm like, no, you reward in the beginning to strengthen the behavior. You reinforce the beginning to strengthen it and to and to get it up to the level of your expectations and maintain it at that level. Mm. And then you can always fade out rewards for those individual things over time and instead use rewards for newer things and then just continue that process until you build this entire skill set for your child sounds to me a lot like when we try to build a new habit into our own lives Mm -hmm. if you if you read you know if it's new year's resolution and you're trying to do 10 new things Mm -hmm. that you read somewhere Mm -hmm. and they're all foreign to you you know it's not you know they're not all going to stick I mean, there's always the weight loss one. Everyone does that. And then all of a sudden, they just think the January 1st, they're all joining gyms. And they're going to all of a sudden, having never gone to the gyms at all, they're going to go to the gym every day. And now, not ever watching what they're eating before. Now, they're going to watch what they eat every day. And, and some of them can do it for a little while, but they burn out pretty quick. You know, right. they, they try to do everything at once instead of just building up one habit at a time. Yeah. Oh, well, so when we have those new habits we're trying to build, sometimes we we're looking for all these ways to reinforce it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if I go to the gym every day, I'm going to buy myself a smoothie. And I found for myself that sometimes just the act of having that, if you will, conversation with myself every day, mm-hmm. now that it's an important thing that I'm thinking about, the smoothie part of it, the reward part of it, is a lot less important than I thought it was. Just, mm-hmm. just the fact that I'm putting a flag there and saying, no, this matters to me to think mm-hmm. about every day. Do you see that happening with parents and their kids, that just, just the act of... Um, yeah, because typically when um, the kids are getting rewards, they're also getting praise from their parents. Mm. And, the, you know, when they're having those good conversations, when they check in on how they're meeting the expectation, did they earn it? And that's a great conversation. They'll get a lot of praise.
always turn that conversation, even if praise wasn't the reward itself. It's kind of paired, and and it's such a positive experience. Then yeah, there's there's nothing stopping the child from just then really just enjoying how how their parents are with them. And then it does get to the point where they're not doing it because they get to go to the movies that weekend, but they can't wait for their mom to be like, "You did such a great job meeting your expectations." Stuff like that, and, and it you know uh, it feels good. You ever uh, have to learn how to do something for yourself for the first time, you know, adulthood, and it's it's kind of daunting because you're like, I've never had to do this for myself before. But then after you do it, you have this amazing sense of accomplishment. Children are incapable are capable of that same thing, right. and so like you know, giving them um, think expectations like that where they're learning how to be more independent is rewarding in itself too. You shared a lot of ideas, and I know that they're not, they're not all commonplace for the average, average listener, perhaps. A lot of this is new and scary and hard for people to conceptualize. I don't really think it is. Maybe that's why I keep blanking on it. I mean, most of the stuff is pretty simple, and it's like, it's not that hard to conceptualize. You just got to try it. Hmm. It's kind of one of those things that, like, as you try, you need that, the same thing. Parents need to meet the same success that children meet, need to meet to continue to do something. You know, asking a parent to have that conversation is asking a parent to change their behavior. We're not just changing the child's behavior, right. we're changing the parent's behavior. I guess I wanted to just reconfirm with you that the things we've talked about today are not your personal opinion necessarily Mm-mm. on what you've seen work, but that the the steps and the definitions and the, very the, whole, the whole process of behavior analysis and, and motivating is, is a well-understood scientific field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, there's, it definitely goes deeper than what we've discussed today, sure. but I wanted to keep it simple. <laughs> so as far as going deeper, what resource would you recommend as just, if, if there is one, a kind of a blanket um, book or author, YouTube videos for the average parent? Um, there are actually a couple books that are um, um, that I recommend for parents. One of them being um, The Power of Positive Thinking by Glenn Latham. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great book that um, talks about um, all the different ages and how to work on behaviors of children and stuff. It's just like a, it's a great, very parent-speak kind of book about different ways to raise your uh, children and be successful in what you want to do um, and what you want them to do. Oh, never mind. It's autism. So, never mind. <laughs> so since we did just scratch the surface, mm-hmm. if, if I'm a parent and I'm wanting to learn more about this, and I'm going to get the Latham book. Would you say it's a very, would you say it's a process that's going to require how long for me to get the, to get the basics of this and start implementing something that's going to work for me in the home? Um, honestly, I have no idea. It really comes down to, I mean, each individual parent mm-hmm. as it does each individual child. We're not just trying to change our children's behavior. We're asking the parents to change their behavior. Right. Um, so it really comes down to how motivated you are. But compared so maybe, to compared maybe, to needing a master's degree and in, in whichever. 
degree. Oh, I doubt you need a <laughs> master's degree to follow Ben Latham's book. Uh-huh. Um, um, a lot of the stuff we've just discussed today, and I had that basic understanding before mm-hmm. I ever got any of my any of the letters at the end of my name. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, it just, but again, it's like anything. It's how motivated are you to learn about it? How motivated are you to try the things that are being recommended in that book? And um, maybe it'd be a good place to start is think of ways to motivate yourself right. to invest in motivating your child. Right. We can go through that same process with ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and when, when we receive the reward, that we're after, mm-hmm. or our child does, it should be a fun, it should be a joyful experience. Mm-hmm. We're putting in a little more work up front in understanding what it's going to take, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day... It pays off. If you, if you get that behavior change in your child that you want, that's what you want to begin with. I mean, uh, I would say that would have to be the terminal objective, and it is to get... Your, uh, to motivate your child to get them to do the things you'd like them to do and for it to be a positive experience for both you and the child. Um, that, would, that would be the, the end all, the goal. Right. Um, so it, should, it kind of rewards itself, but there's nothing wrong with rewarding yourself a little bit along the way. Right. Maybe finding some time to sit in the bath and drink a glass of wine while flipping through the pages of the book. Sure. Um, the cool thing about um, positive power parenting uh, or the power of positive parenting sorry uh, is that he leaves big uh, margins in the sides of the right notes and stuff so if something stands out to you you can just write it on the side you can always flip back to it later I thought that was pretty cool and very helpful for parents well we can call it done are there any any parting thoughts anything you wish wish I had asked or (laughs) wanted to cover in our Remaining well. Yeah. Thanks for meeting with me today. <laughs> no problem. And, uh, thank you.